Last week, we began our Advent sermon series uh, dealing with the birth narratives of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. And so last week, we looked at the first part of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. So yes, you get two weeks of genealogy. I know, you're excited. But last week, we focused on verses 1 through 6, where we looked specifically at how Matthew kind of broke the expected pattern that you have in a genealogy to insert the names of four women. That these four women emphasized how Jesus came to save sinners and those touched by sin. And no kind of sin or shame in our past can exclude us from finding salvation in Jesus. Well, instead of looking today at breaks in the pattern, we're kind of looking at the genealogy and the pattern that Matthew has set. That Matthew begins his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, with this lineage from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. But he notes at the end that he has intentionally kind of condensed and shaped his genealogy so that there are three segments, three groups of 14. Why is that? What is Matthew doing? And what on earth does this list of really old people's names have to do for us today? Well, hopefully we can figure some of that out as we listen to the Word of God and as we hear what it has to say this morning. So I'd, open you, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles or look at the bulletin as I try to read this list of names for you. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 through verse 17. This finishes the genealogy of Jesus. We're picking up with Solomon, who's the son of David. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim. And Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mothan, and Mothan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that all of it matters. And even if it's a list of names of people we don't always know and don't know how to pronounce and 
We're not really sure what this means. We pray, O God, that you still speak through your word, that your word still teaches, that we are told that every part of it is useful and profitable. And so I pray, O Lord, that by your spirit, you would make the hearing and preaching of this word profitable today that you would use me in spite of my sin and weakness to faithfully expound this passage and apply it to us, and that you would give us ears to hear, open our hearts and minds that this word might take root in us and grow in us by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage this morning is not just about a list of fun names. The big idea is not that you should choose different names for your kids, like those really fun names, like Zerubbabel, one of my favorites. The big idea is that Jesus is from this line of kings. This is a regal lineage, a line from David down through the kings trying to trace who should be king of Israel. And what it shows us is that Jesus is the better king of a better kingdom. And he reigns now and forever over heaven and earth. And as we look at this, I want to point out two ways today that Jesus is a better king than all those who came before him. And two ways he reigns over a better kingdom than the kingdom that came before him. So the first way that Jesus is a better king deals with his shared humanity. That as you look at this, this is Jesus's real family tree. These are his ancestors. They were all real people just like Jesus. They were born, they grew up, they got hungry, they got cold, they got tired, and Jesus was a man just like these men. He understood the human condition because he was fully human. But one thing that he did not share with his ancestors was a sinful nature. See, Jesus may have inherited the hair color of Zerubbabel, or the nose of Eliezer, but he did not inherit their sin. One of the great miracles we celebrate at Christmas is that Jesus was divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit. We notice that in verse 16, how Matthew words that verse. Listen to it again. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. Notice you would expect the pattern to be this. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph, the father of Jesus. That's not what it says. Matthew is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus was conceived differently by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. We'll talk about that more next week in the rest of Matthew chapter 1. You see, every other person except for Jesus in the world, including you and me, is born inheriting the sin of Adam and Eve. That in the garden, Adam and Eve fell into a sinful condition that they passed on to all of their descendants. And so even today, no matter how cute that newborn baby is, he or she is born into a sinful condition. You see, sin is not just the wrong things that we do or we say or we think. Sin is like a sickness or a corruption that pollutes us. And what Matthew is telling us is Jesus didn't have that. Though he was just as human as we are, he did not inherit this sinful nature. And that makes him a much better king than all the ones who came before him. 
You see, the kings listed in this genealogy, all of them sinned. Some sinned a little, others sinned a lot. But all of them sinned. They acted selfishly. They hurt others. They disobeyed God. They oppressed their own people. All of them sinned. Rehoboam, for example, didn't listen to his wise counselors and led Israel into a civil war that split the kingdom. Ahaz refused to trust in God when an enemy army was invading. And Manasseh, we're told that he did more wickedness than all the kings that came before him. Jesus isn't like that. When he lived on earth, he was perfectly righteous. Never sinned. Not once. Kids, do you get that? Kids, that means that Jesus at the dinner table never went, Ugh, I don't want to eat those veggies. Okay? It means Jesus never shoved his younger brother in anger. It means Jesus never lied to his mom and dad. Adults, this means Jesus never cut corners at work. He's a carpenter. Carpenters have ways of cutting corners. He never did. It means Jesus never whispered unkind things about people behind their back. It means Jesus never lusted after a woman. Jesus is a better king because he is not sinful. He reigns in righteousness of pure integrity and godliness. And he is a better king in that way. The second way he is a better king is that he does not have a term limit. See, all genealogies imply an unfortunate reality. We die. That generations come and go. People are born and eventually people die. And if you look at this list of names, I'm sure that at some point in history, like three or maybe four of them were alive at the same time. But Abraham was long gone by the time of David. All of them eventually died. And that's the way with kings. Their term limit is typically their death. Three months ago, Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96. And she reigned over England and its territories for over 70 years. Think of how many people in England were born and died within those 70 years. She would have been the only ruler they ever knew. And in recent years, it kind of seemed like she was going to keep doing this forever. Like nothing was going to get her. But she died. Even though she reigned over 70 years. That reign came to an end. No king or queen rules forever, even if it feels that way. And see, Israel and Judah had quite a few good kings. David was a great king. So were Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. They're all good guys. They were godly men who served the Lord and blessed the people. And each of them reigned for a minimum of like 30 years. Imagine that. That is way longer than a four-year term limit. That would be a great reign, a good time of peace and prosperity for the people. And yet, as good as they were, they all eventually died. And they were replaced, usually by their sons. And when the crown goes from one person to the next, you never really know how things are going to change for better or worse. But Jesus, even though he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead. 
death could not stop his reign. Jesus rose from the dead in a new and better body that is never going to die. And He ascended into heaven where even today He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty reigning over His kingdom now and forever. His term is not ending. He will not die again. We have a good and righteous King who reigns now and forever. And so Matthew is using this genealogy to show us that Jesus is this promised king from the lineage of David. And he is better than everyone who came before him because he is without sin and death will not stop him. Now, if he's a better king, that goes to reason that he should have a better kingdom. And so I want to look at some reasons why his kingdom is better. So the first one deals with this kind of break that we see in the pattern in verses 11 and 12. That in the first group of names, we saw there were a lot of breaks in the pattern with the mention of those women. But really, in the stuff I just read, there wasn't much breaking of the pattern except for this one spot where it talks about the deportation to Babylon. That story is not as familiar to folks as other stories. Uh, You know, there are movies made about the Exodus, about the greatest positive event in the history of God's people. And you can see movies like The Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments, and they're parting the Red Sea. It's this big old story, and everyone knows it. Deportation to Babylon, not, not a lot of movies about that, I don't think. Because it's the most significant negative event in the history of God's people. As we read in our Old Testament reading, the Babylonian army invaded Judah. They laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and they eventually conquered it. They broke down the walls so it was no longer able to be defended. Eventually, we would read in 2 Kings chapter 25, they burned the houses. They burned the king's palace and the houses of the common folk. And eventually, they even burned the temple that Solomon had built. They made sure to carry all the valuable stuff out first. But the place where God promised to dwell, the place God promised to protect, was destroyed and defiled. And the God who always seemed to win now appeared to be defeated. But there was a little phrase in our Old Testament reading, I think it was in verse 13, right at the end, And it said, as the Lord had foretold. You see, God permitted this conquering to happen to judge and discipline His people for their sinful rebellion. See, in the years leading up to this conquering, this deportation, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn His people to stop rebelling or disaster will come. God will let you be conquered. An enemy will take you captive. You will be exiled if you don't listen. And so they didn't listen. And they were conquered. And things would never be the same again. You see, after the deportation, there was never a real king of Israel again. There was never a kingdom of Israel again. From then on, they were a province a little territory under the rule of larger foreign powers. Whether it was Babylon, or like in the time of Jesus, it was Rome. That's why he spoke to Pilate. Pilate was the governor sent from Rome to rule over that province. 
Jesus' kingdom is better than this, though. Jesus did not come to rule over an earthly kingdom that could be conquered by physical force. He brings a kingdom that will endure forever. A secure kingdom through His church. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. He says that His kingdom cannot be shaken by the forces of the world. And so no matter how fearsome the world might seem, Jesus' kingdom will never be conquered. And that's because Jesus is the one who does the conquering. Just as God gave Israel to Babylon, so a day is coming when Jesus will come to conquer all the nations of the world. When He will come to judge the living and the dead. And Revelation 19 describes this image of Jesus riding as a conqueror on a white horse with a sword in His hand to judge the nations. That a day is coming not when the church will be conquered, but when Christ will conquer all. The kingdom of Jesus faces no real threats. Yes, it can seem like persecution is increasing. Yes, it can seem like the church is marginalized. But we know the end. And the end does not end with the church being conquered, but with Christ doing the conquering. And so in that way, Jesus' kingdom is better. The second way Jesus' kingdom is better is that it is not an earthly political kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. You see, the kings of Israel, they ruled over a nation that had physical borders. You could probably see a sign, welcome to Israel. And then, oh, I am now in Israel. They had to deal with like commerce and military defense and all of that stuff. They were political entities that operated in earthly ways. But Jesus' kingdom is not like that. It's a spiritual kingdom. Our New Testament reading from John 18 showed us that conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus is under the authority of this governor from Rome. He is bound. And Jesus is there just talking about his kingdom. And Pilate's laughing at him like, you sure don't seem like any king to me. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to build a political kingdom. If I was, we would have fought you guys. I don't have an earthly nation. I'm not waging physical war. I'm doing something different. He was waging a different kind of war that day. He wasn't battling against Rome, but against sin and death and hell as he prepared to die as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. That he accomplished his greatest victory through what seemed like a, an insurmountable defeat. And in his victory, Jesus secured the power to do what the kingdoms of this world cannot do. You see, earthly kingdoms can make laws. And some laws restrain negative behavior. And other laws reward good behavior. And so earthly kings and rulers have the ability to change behavior sometimes. But what they cannot change is hearts. Political kingdoms cannot transform citizens so they no longer sin. Only Jesus works in us from the inside out to make us holy as He is holy. And so Jesus does more than legislate. 
Jesus does more than inspire. He does more than educate. He does more than demonstrate. Jesus transforms sinful people like us. It's a problem in our world today. It's a problem for the church today. That we can get too easily focused on the political kingdoms of our world. That we can put our ultimate hopes into leaders that we hope will pass new laws and uphold certain values thinking this is what is going to bring the change the world needs. Well, sure, in a sense, some positive change can be made. But we need something better than that. We need a better kingdom where people are truly transformed. Because a new leader with new legislation is only good until the term changes. Or until they die. Or opinion changes. Legislation changes. Jesus changes hearts. And He promises this kingdom through His church. And He transforms us through His Word and His Spirit working in and through us so we live as a spiritual kingdom in the midst of our earthly kingdoms waiting for the fullness of our kingdom to be revealed. And so Jesus brings this better spiritual kingdom that actually changes us. And so as we're looking at Jesus as this better king, he brings a better kingdom. We look back at this genealogy, this list of names in Matthew 1, and we're like, awesome, this is so great. But what's the big deal about the number 14? You look at these groupings, and you're like, all right, so cool, you made it. Like, did you just find this and think it's neat? Are you just like an an orderly guy and like, 14 and 14 and 14? Why not... Six groups of seven. Why not one big group of 42 or two groups of 21? Why why 14? Why make it this way, Matthew? He did this. There's a few names he left out in here. So he intentionally has made it these names for a purpose. Why? Well, I think you can look at it either from an earthly perspective or a heavenly perspective. And from an earthly perspective, you could look at it as, well, this neatly divides up into three eras of God's people. Era one, we start with Abraham, one man, and we end up rising into a nation with a king. And so it's this growth from a people to a nation. And then era two is the era of the nation as it has its success and gradually, slowly declines and rebels against God until it is conquered. And then you're given era three, a people in exile, a marginalized, an oppressed people, a kingdom that is no longer a kingdom, just a people group, a small minority that exists under other ruling powers. A people that longs for its glory days, but has no real hope of getting back there. And if you think about it, that's kind of the way nations normally go. If you study history, you see that nations rise from a leader or a people group and they rise up and they have their moment of glory. And then slowly it can creep down until they're conquered. And then there's just these remnants 
of people who remember what it used to be like and they recede into the background. And it's almost like Matthew wants us to ask, is that Israel? Is that all Israel is? Are we just like all the other nations that have come and gone and we're just going to slowly dissipate and no longer be a real thing? Or are we different? Because the number 14 could likely mean something else. In ancient times, apparently they really liked numbers and symbols and codes and things. And so a number of people look at this and they're left scratching their head. What do you do with the number 14? Well, one of the ways it can be interpreted is that it is the numerical value of the name David. So if you were to give each letter in the alphabet a number and then add up the letters in that name. So, for example, dad in the English alphabet D is 4, A is 1, D is 4. And so that would be 9. And so the word dad would be 9. Well, in Hebrew, they didn't have vowels, only consonants. And so D, V, D was 4, 6, 4. You math majors out there, that's 14. And you're like, who could possibly think of that? Well, who can possibly think of another reason? You see, David was important. David was not just the first king. In fact, he wasn't. Saul was king before him. Why was David important? God promised to David, I will make of you a kingdom that will never end. That there will always be a king over my people from the line of David. That someone is coming to reign forever from your family. From this promise to David is the hope we have for the Messiah. And so the question then is, God, are you going to keep those promises? Do you remember the promises you made to David? Because it's been 14 generations or so since we had a king. Is it ever going to come? Is he ever going to be here? Was that promise to David made up? Was it a legend? Is it something we can't trust? Matthew is telling us Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that God has sent after the line of David to be that king that will reign over his people forever. He has descended from David and he reigns forever that he is holy and righteous and without sin. He is a wise man who leads by example, securing the good life for his people. He's what you want a king to be. And he has brought a better kingdom this is who He is. As you look at this genealogy, and you think of those promises, you might be thinking, that's way too good to be true. It's way too good. No one can ever do that. No one could ever be that kind of king. I mean, we've had presidents and rulers and leaders throughout history, and in every biography, everything you read about each and every one of them, there's always that section, the, well, they also did this. And sometimes that section's a little bigger, sometimes it's a little smaller, but that section's always there. There's always an end to their reign, and there's always a, oh, did this. Not with Jesus. Jesus is the better king that we know we need, we've never had, and now he's here.
And Matthew is telling us this is the one. Our better king of a better kingdom. Let us serve him and live for him and be blessed by our King Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, we come to you today to worship you as king. We thank you, O Lord, that you have sent us Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. We thank you that that promise made nearly a thousand years before Jesus was born to David, that you kept it and that you sent that promised king and that he still reigns today. Help us to see the truth of this king, to trust in Jesus, to know that he is a king that does not oppress, but a king that serves. He is not a king that attacks. He is a king that saves. May we rejoice in him and find ourselves as citizens of his better kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.